Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street posted strong gains in the wake of comments by Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell that were interpreted as less hawkish on future interest rate hikes. As Russia's war on Ukraine nears its first anniversary and Moscow steps up its offensive, Washington has approved a $10 billion package of arms for Poland as Warsaw continues a massive modernization drive. This as NATO allies debate approving the export of combat aircraft, Kiev says, are vital to defending the country, a case that Vladimir Zelensky laid out in his moving address to the UK parliament last week. And speaking of air warfare, at the time of this taping, F-22 fighters uh, had downed three balloons, one a giant Chinese surveillance airship that flew uh, over U.S. missile fields and a stealth bomber base last week, and two smaller craft, one drowned uh, over Prudhoe Bay uh, up in Alaska and the other over Canada. The first shootdown came uh, off the Carolina coast. Uh, just days before President Biden's State of the Union address. And more earnings as Bombardier, HII, Saab, Spirit Aero Systems, and Transdime Group uh, all report as Mitsubishi cancels uh, the Space Jet Regional Aircraft Program uh, and Turkey and Syria struggle uh, in the face of a devastating earthquake that has killed tens of thousands and left millions uh, homeless in our hearts uh, go out uh, to uh, the Turkish and Syrian people as they uh, struggle with this uh, it just incredible tragedy. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. It wouldn't be Sunday without you. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yes, thank you so much, Vago. Always a pleasure. Indeed, wouldn't be Sunday without this, Vago. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much all for joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air warfare coverage. Uh, Ron, uh, Jay Powell said that he is going to continue to raise uh, short-term uh, borrowing uh, rates as necessary to uh, control inflation, but he was seen as somewhat less hawkish, so the market had a very good week. Walk us through sort of the bigger driving factors and how the group uh, performed against that uh, broader up market. Sure. I mean, there's still a debate going on about, you know, there's a the soft landing camp, and then there's the camp that says no, back and forth. But actually, if you look at the S&P on the week, it was down a percent. So uh, not a ton, but you know, the market ended up down. Um, if you look at our coverage, just looking at bellwether, big big cap stocks, um, the big defense names outperformed uh, the the rest of the group. Uh, Northrop Grumman was up uh, about five and a half percent. Lockheed Martin almost five percent. Uh, Raytheon four percent. Boeing three percent, uh, and L- LHX uh, L3 Harris up about two percent. Uh, it's interesting just to note. Both Northrop and Lockheed initiated large buyback plans, and the stocks have been kind of going up ever since they announced that, more or less, with some you know little fumbles here and there, given other things going on in the market. Um, when you look at oil prices, they were up on the week. Um, WTI is north of 80, Brent crude's above uh, above 86. 
the VIX index bottomed out at the beginning of February at 18. This week it was uh, up to about 21. Um, so you know the you know how can I say it? Fear aversion is kind of creeping back into the market. Uh, and also, uh, if you look at the 10-year yield, the 10-year yield uh, has been creeping up since the beginning of February. It bottomed out at about 3.4. It ended this week about 3.8. Um, and it's you know some people expect it to kind of creep back up into that north of. Uh, for range, uh, and it's so so. It's still a debate where where the Fed's going to end up, and uh, in many ways, this is still uh, a macro-driven market. Uh, thanks, Ron, and I want to get to earnings uh, in just a moment. But Sash, walk us through European markets. Uh, obviously, um, some of these trends. Uh, Europe is a little bit behind the United States, whether it's on inflation, inflation running a little bit higher in the UK. Obviously, a big debate going on in France about the future uh, of uh, the retirement age. Uh, Francois Mitterrand dropped it to 60, then it went to 62. Uh, Emmanuel Macron wants to, wants to raise it to uh, 64, uh, given that people are living a lot longer than they did in 1980. Um, you know, how, how is all of this sort of impacting the group and European markets? Yeah, well, I'm first of all, I think I think you'll find that politically that's described as a brutal and heartless 64 uh, planned retirement age by uh, President Macron, despite the fact that every other nation in Europe, most people would you know be delighted to, to be uh, allowed to retire that young. But, you know, the, um, the French have managed uh, remarkably well on this so far. Um, uh, good luck. Good luck to President Macron with that one. Um, yeah. So. It was a it, you know the, the the week was relatively similar in terms of sort of the spread to um, uh, to Ron. I'd say a bit more um, extreme in Europe actually. I mean, looking at it, the civil related stocks were all down uh, in total uh, yeah, about two and a, two and a half percent. Airbus was off three uh, percent um, on the week. Rolls Royce off a couple. Uh, Safran up uh, off a couple. And then the real performers this week were generally, although not entirely, the defence stocks. I mean, defence stocks were. Um, averaged up two uh, percent, but within that, um, uh, Saab was up nearly twelve percent. Talis up two, um, Rheinmetall up two, Leonardo up four. So there were some very very strong performers in the defence stocks. These tended to be either uh, earnings related, Saab, or um, particularly in the case of Leonardo, which has um, come up from about eight euros to nearly ten euros in the last six weeks or so. Um, it's a growing confidence that they are going to um, get some more big orders this year. There's been quite a lot of talk about possible uh, further orders for the Eurofighter Typhoon, which uh, Leonardo would uh, lead. And um, that really has been behind quite a significant re- uh, re-rating of the stock there. But I mean, overall, I would say there's not a lot of optimism uh, or extra optimism about civil. Um, Airbus results are coming up this week. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think, you know, they have got, at the very least, production indigestion, and it's going to take some time to work through on that one. And, you know, that affects the whole of the UK system, whereas the defence stocks, um, you know, some results show the defence environment is continuing to improve. And, um, you know, that's really, I think, why investors have been getting behind them this week. Uh, and we're uh, going to, I'm going to ask you about, uh, well, why don't we take this uh, opportunity and let me ask you about Saab uh, at this point, right? Um, you know, you said 12% uh, up, uh, they certainly beat expectations. A lot of questions about the future of the company, especially uh, in the wake of uh, Sweden's interest in in joining uh, NATO. 
and how that changes uh, the dynamic. I mean, even Swedish commentators are saying uh, and urging Sweden uh, to curtail, for example, the Gripen and invest in F-35s, a jet that every other country uh, in the region and indeed has become the alliance's standard jet uh, at this point after the Germans uh, and Finns uh, went along with it uh, as well. Um, sort of walk, walk us through what made Saab's earnings so special this time around. I mean, look, Bug, I'm going to pick you up on that F-35 one first. Okay? That, because that, that, that has worked so well for industries in every other European country that's bought it. Um, you've got to ask why it is that, um, Joe, uh, you know, the UK and Italy, which, are, which were our major partners in the F-35, decided to uh, go the route of Tempest uh, for their next generation fighter. It's because you keep high-tech jobs and... Um, you, cre you create and retain technology in your country rather than just becoming a, you know, a metal basher or a sub, you know, a, a subcontractor where you have, um, you know, you effectively lose your, your national capability very quickly. Um, I, I recognize that Sweden is a country surrounded by F-35 operators. That's a, um, you know, in, a, in alliance terms, that's a very, very nice position to be in. But um, yeah, future, the future of Gripen is, one of the issues for Saab. That was not what drove Saab's results uh, right. uh, last week. Last week, it was about very, very strong uh, order intake, including um, uh, some big uh, upgrade and uh, maintenance orders for uh, Gripen, but also um, signals intelligence ships for, uh, for Poland, airborne early warning aircraft um, for an undisclosed um, customer. And the dynamics and surveillance business and dynamics, which is anti-armor weapons in, uh, in particular, is just astonishingly strong. Um, uh, and what was fascinating about uh, Saab's um, uh, orders here is that they, they are actually saying, the first company is saying about 10% of the total 60 billion crowns of orders that they had last year were directly as a result of Ukraine. I.e. the customer hadn't been thinking about them before uh, end of February last year, and they turned those into orders. Now, Saab is right at the front end of um, early cycle rearmament because the anti-armor business, uh, either Enlaw uh, missiles or the Carl Gustav recoilless rifle or the AT-4 disposable system, um, and then a bunch of other missiles, particularly um, uh, air defense and anti-ship, those are the, the, I would say the ground combat business is really the business that countries look to first when they suddenly worry that um, they, they might have to go to war. That's benef benefiting Saab enormously. They're doubling production there. They're going to double production again. Um, and what I found fascinating is that to deal with the supply problems that they have had, uh, you know, everybody has had all supply challenges, they've done what I think is the sensible thing. They put two and a half billion crowns into working capital. I, they bought stuff before they need it. They've made big commitments to their uh, suppliers. And as a consequence, they're much less worried about the supply chain now than they were even at the nine month stage, let alone the first half uh, of last year, because um, they've done the right thing for their suppliers and the right thing for uh, their visibility in terms of delivering short term orders for the customers. So, you know, kudos to them for that. Final point I'd make, and, you know, why would shares up 12%? Well, Saab has been, you know, guiding last five years, really, to be growing organically about 5% per annum, which is meh. Um, and 2023, they, that blew that out of the water. They are now guiding to organic growth of 15%, margins expanding on top of that, partly a volume uh, issue, partly efficiencies. So 
this is just a step change up in terms of the uh, the level of growth at the moment. Um, and they've got a capital markets day coming up uh, this week. Going to be really interesting to you know to delve down into the the detail of of you know how long does this go on for? You know the the F thirty five versus Griffin story is clearly going to come up. Um, and you know look forward to talking about it next week. Um, I am uh, not at all trying to make the case. Uh, that anybody shouldn't be investing in a future program. And I should say that uh, Sweden was one, um, along with Saab, expected to be one of those partners on the Tempest effort uh, that included uh, Italy and now includes uh, Japan. So that's going to be very, very interesting to watch. I'm just making a matter of fact observation that there are vo- you know, voices in Sweden who are saying, hey, we have to get the F-35 uh, because of uh, the other people uh, uh, around it. Ron, I'm going to get to you uh, in, a, in a second uh, to uh, talk about uh, earnings, uh, but I want to go to Richard really quick on the, on the fighter aircraft point. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because uh, for many years, of course, Saab has been um, the one great uh, flag carrier, if you will, of European combat aircraft sovereignty, not total sovereignty, obviously, as a GE engine and lots of other components are imported, and that's the way it's always been. But the idea of keeping not just this national skill, but also this business opportunity and this opportunity to create or to punch above their weight as an aerospace company has been part of their core strategy for decades now. And it would be kind of ironic because everyone else in the world is sort of seizing upon this opportunity, you know, from Korea, especially Korea, but also, you know, Turkey, Taiwan again, India, certainly, you know, lots of folks are looking at opportunities in the the combat aircraft market. And yet you've got Sweden sort of stepping away from it. Uh, that's a bit of a mystery because there would seem to be uh, some significant opportunities. Kind of reminds me of what the, I know we'll talk about this later, but what the Koreans are doing on the tank front, basically they saw a tremendous export opportunity and they're pursuing it. And they're pursuing it again with combat aircraft with of course the success of selling 48 FA-50s to Poland and no doubt KF-21 will have some decent export successes too. So it's sort of the notable that, you know, Saab is, is kind of slightly stepping back or perhaps not fully participating in this process. Indeed, but it is going to be something, um, I think, uh, very interesting to watch. Uh, Ron, um, just walk us through earnings uh, at this point, right? Um, we had uh, HII, we've got Spirit Aerosystems, uh, obviously some commercial implications there, even as the company's defense group has been doing well. Uh, we have Transdime, um, kind of walk us through uh, the, the gamma and Bombardier uh, as well, right? So walk us through uh, what we've seen from uh, from the group. Yeah, it was an interesting week, right? Because um, you had Bombardier report for um, all business jets nowadays, right? With uh, with the hopes of an emerging defense business based on business jet platforms. Um, they ended the week down almost almost 10% on a quarter that it was actually pretty good, honestly, right? I mean, they generated cash, they paid off some debt. Um, but I think the the narrative there, and remember the equity market's always about narratives, uh, is you know a backlog that was less than one, right? So kind of the investor psychology on that is, well, what are we playing for now? Um, and narratives change all the time, but I think that's why the shares were down um, uh, on what was actually a decent quarter and uh, a decent outlook for next year. Um, Huntington Ingalls reported, uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was what it was. I mean, I, I don't think there's um, a, a, heck of, a heck of a lot to talk there. I think Spirit Aerosystems was probably the, the more interesting one that brought up a lot of um, conversation, I think, both in the investment community and in the supplier community. 
Spirit came out and said, hey, you know what, we're going to we're going to deliver 427 37s this year, which is well above where Boeing said they would be in terms of fabricating. And, you know, when Spirit delivers, they deliver you know a fuselage, which you know you assume that Boeing will turn that into an airplane. So then everybody said, well, maybe that means Boeing's going to deliver more airplanes. And then Boeing came out and told the investment community, well, actually, that's not the case. Um, uh, we, we just don't believe that they can do that. So yes, we do have them going at a higher rate than we can produce because we don't actually believe they can produce there. And then that's kind of what we heard in the supply chain too. So, and then the profitability on the 737 program, even at these higher rates is far lower uh, than investors were expecting. So that was an unpleasant surprise. Uh, and then they took some other charges on wide body programs. So the commercial business had a really, really rough quarter and the outlook actually wasn't um, uh, wasn't great. Uh, and then Transdime, you know, you know, from in kind of Wall Street parlance, just sort of crushed it. Uh, their aftermarket business is doing very well. Um, they don't seem to be having the same kind of supply chain issues that uh, other companies are having. Having um, They're getting pricing. They always get pricing. They're still getting pricing. So, um, and, and if you just kind of go through the summary, you know, aftermarket looks great. OE looks tough. Defense looks kind of like status quo. Business jets are doing well. However, the market is slowing. Uh, Sash, uh, anything you want to add from a European uh, supply chain and and what all of this means? Because uh, ultimately, it's all one interconnected ecosystem anyway. Uh, we're going to hear a, a ton more about the European supply chain uh, this week and going forward um, uh, as Airbus and Safran in particular, who really are the two bellwethers um, uh, as they report. Uh, there, there's, there's nothing that came out last week. And uh, uh, Richard, anything uh, you want to add? And if you don't have anything else to add on this, uh, talk to us about the stunning, absolutely stunning cancellation, Mitsubishi's, uh, Mitsubishi's cancellation of the uh, space jet. Just stunning. Yeah, that was um, a completely unexpected shock. Kind of takes you back to Center Net Live with Generalissimo Francisco Franco still holding on in his valiant fight to remain dead. Uh, what was pretty extraordinary was they they spelled out the obvious, which was, you know, ridiculous outlay of resources relative to paltry opportunities and uncertainty about the market future. It was like this giant, you know, skull and crossbone biohazard sign saying regional market, do not enter here, anybody, certain death. And uh, that was that was sort of interesting reading. You know, obviously, you're down to one company, really, Embraer making the most of it, but not exactly getting rich. Um, it's really extraordinary how that market basically disintegrated and uh, will possibly never come back again. And and is that because of jets like the uh, A350, A321 uh, and the 320 and the 319, right? And the various 747s? I mean, what is it that explains this collapse? Because many of us still end up on a lot of different kinds of Embraer's that have specialized in this uh, area. And one of the things that the 220 was supposed to be the, you know, the sort of super regional jet that was supposed to get us there with five across seating reminiscent of an MD-80. Well, the 220 quickly became a mainline jet. It's pretty good at that, actually. But in terms of regional, you know, hub and spoke, you know, or I should say regional feeder operations, there's uh, there's really nothing except the E-175 and, and of course, the ATR. You know, one of the bigger mysteries is whether someone will come up with a decent, I don't know, say 40 seat turboprop or jet, but most likely for a turboprop to replace the many thousands of aircraft out there. But, you know, what killed the regional market beyond this bare, you know, two to one or one to two replacement requirement? 
Um, you know, so many things, uh, high-speed rail in places like China or France, along with various no-fly mandates for short routes in, in places and, and future decarbonization initiatives in places like Norway or France or whatever else. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, you've got just a relatively dense route network in many parts of the world that call for bigger jets. Uh, even before the high-speed rail thing, China wasn't a regional customer to any great degree because, you know, the, the price of entry is basically 150 seats, not smaller. This is still a North American market, very overwhelmingly heavily North American, right. and it's only getting more so. So the question really is just someone can make a go of building one or 2,000, you know, 40-seat planes to replace what's out there, and the rest, you know, just no growth opportunity. So Space Jet was sort of going to be remembered as this uh, kind of farcical last hurrah a lot of good intentions, a lot of good technologies, but ultimately Satan's business case. <laughs> Ron and uh, Sash, anything you want to add uh, to this before we go uh, to uh, balloons uh, and the defense part of the conversation? I'd say the one thing that's complicated, even the North American story, is the pilot situation, right? Until the pilot situation in North America sorts itself out, what you're seeing happen is pilots uh, being you know, recruited uh, through the regionals up to the main lines. So uh, when you think about um, the requirement for, for pilots and the training requirements, right, 1,500 hours for both seats in the front of the plane, at least, um, that makes things just, you know, far more complicated because you just have far fewer pilots. Um, that being said, like Richard said, I mean, there is a market for one to 2,000 of these things. And um, somebody, I would imagine, make a go of it. Um, we'll see how that all goes. But um, the, the pilot thing does definitely currently make it far more complicated. If I could just quickly add to that, it's, it's not just the pilot, the 1500 hour rule that, that Ron correctly refers to. It's also scope. Of course, you know, there's this ridiculous scope clause restriction. You know, there's an argument for scope from an airline union standpoint. But when it became weight driven, it effectively prevented technology that was the same size, but with new engines from coming in. In other words, it was uh, a fuel burn promotion device. Uh, <laughs> and that's ultimately what killed, helped kill the MRJ. That's awesome. Um, uh, Sash, anything you want to add to this before we part uh, with the fuel burn promotion? <laughs> that I, it's impossible to cap that. I mean, it's just such a, such a horrible image. I think I'll, I'll just leave it there. Uh, before we go on with the rest of the show, please check out our weekly podcast, Capital Ships, hosted by our uh, very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, uh, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with our very own uh, JJ Gertler. Um, I want to uh, shift uh, first, any anything anybody wants to say about the State of the Union uh, address, uh, obviously, um, you know, um, the overall marks the president got were pretty high. It was intended to be a domestic speech at a time when Americans are uh, particularly worried about uh, inflation and their economic futures and jobs and, and what have you, even though we have very low unemployment. And, and Ron, you've thoughtfully talked about how that is not a good thing uh, as it drives costs and labor uh, costs up. Uh, and but some people said the president didn't spend as much time talking about foreign policy, China and, and, and the like. Anything anybody uh, wants uh, to to add to any of those uh, messages? I mean, I just have to say that there is a, a robust back and forth apparently going on between the Pentagon and the White House uh, because the budget is supposed to drop on March the 9th. 
uh, and it looks like it is going to be higher. We don't know how much higher. I had been hearing $30 billion higher, uh, but apparently that's uh, still uh, under debate and discussion. But anything anybody wants to say about the State of the Union before we go to the, the Great Balloon episodes of 2003, something that if you had told somebody 30 years ago, the first three kills by F-22s would be balloons, uh, that it told you you're nuts, as uh, JJ uh, observes regularly on our program. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a perfect State of the Union address, of course, no one, no one ever does a perfect one, but he, he did a pretty good job of seizing the center. And I think that's important right now, because you look at the two issues that affect our industry, obviously defense spending and obviously aid for Ukraine. Um, that appears to be almost a, you know, a, a great consensus between the Democrats and Republicans threatened only by the extreme, I can't tell what they are, left or right wing of the Republican Party. I really don't know anymore what they are. But they looked they looked like, you know, nothing more than bomb throwers and completely useless. That was good because, you know, at the end of the day, you've got Rand Paul arguing to cut the defense budget by, what, $100 billion or something like that? And you've got others saying, you know, all glory to comrade Putin. That's not good from the standpoint of aiding Ukraine. The quicker we establish a consensus between 90% of the Republicans and uh, 90% of the Democrats come up with a good centrist approach to national security, the better we will be, our industry will be, and I would argue the West will be. Ron, are, are folks beginning to have any expectations, right? $30 billion more, fifteen ten. What's What's sort of the scuttlebutt on the street on where, uh, right? I mean, the, the markets are all about betting on where we're going to end up. Where's the market betting we're going to end up, right? Because there's a sense, even by the White House, we have to give more money because Republicans are primed to give us more money, right? I mean, so it's sort of the gateway drug. I have to ask for more in order to get a lot more. And I want a lot more on this. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's still, you know, still coming in. I get incoming from investors, call it 15 billion plus or minus 10. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, a firm target just yet. But right. I mean, if you will, the word is out that it's probably going to be up. Well, that's that's uh, that's good. I like I like that word. Um, talk to us about near space and balloons. You know, last week uh, you said something fascinating, Ron, um, that. You know, we, you know, th this is clearly seen as as gray zone. We've had senior officials brief, uh, including um, the uh, deputy secretary of state, apparently, uh, it's been reported, has briefed something like 40 allied nations uh, on the threat. It looks like we collected an enormous amount of intelligence on the balloon as across the United States. So there is a sense now we may know more about what it is that we're looking for, that these aren't just large uh, cl uh, climatological balloons, which you know, may have been an assumption uh, because I think a lot of nations around the world put large scientific payloads in, quote, near space. Um, kind of walk us through what the takeaways are from a defense uh, standpoint, because it seems like now, right, I mean, the first three intercepts F-22s have done have been against balloons or unidentified objects, right? I mean, there's a friend of mine who keeps sending me UFO stuff, which I don't think is really that credible, but anyway. Yeah, we're shooting down aliens. Um, I, I don't. I don't think the jury's out, at least from a from a market perspective, right? I mean, you know, ultimately, what does it mean when you know, what what was the last purchase price of an F twenty two off the line? Richard, do you remember what was it? One hundred million, one hundred twenty million back in the day. Uh, if you take away all the non recurring engineering, but if you have you know a a state of the art air superiority fighter shooting down a balloon. 
I don't know, that opens up all kinds of questions, right? Um, you, know, you know, what's it mean for the Intel budget? What's it mean for all kinds of things? You know, I don't, I don't think the street has come in, has come to a conclusion on ultimately what it means, uh, but it it probably means maybe some shift in Intel strategy, maybe spending, but but it's it's unclear, at least to the investment community at this point. Sash, what's the European response uh, to this? Uh, because it looks like these uh, Chinese craft have actually been flying over a lot of countries in a lot of places, right? It's made multiple, uh, at least three times during the Trump administration over the United States. Once earlier uh, during the Biden tenure, we're realizing that they've been over Japan, uh, certainly over Taiwan, and and in, including some reporting that actually we've seen this activity over Europe as well. How are Europeans uh, looking at this? Because it doesn't look like people were looking at this threat as nefarious, you know, as something as nefarious as it may actually be, right? Well, that's a weather balloon. We have weather balloons. Gosh, nobody would be using it that way, would they? It's actually not cut through very much here in Europe. And here's why. We've had gray zone um, threats in Europe for 15 plus years. Um, European nations have become very used to the idea of cyber attacks, um, uh, little green men, you know, unidentified soldiers who you can't ever pin on, Russia, for example, and uh, subversive activities either, you know, through um, uh, non-state organizations or so, you know, this is just part of the same. Um, It may be that that, that's that's very, very new to you, but I mean, stuff flying over, stuff flying over Europe, I mean, fine, it's a, again, that's been part of the way that, uh, you know, the grey zone conflicts have been developing in Europe for, for a decade or more. Um, I think Europe, you know, Europe, Europeans are much more focused on Ukraine. What does it take to get a satisfactory outcome to that? What are the implications for how all European nations defend themselves, both during this war and, and after? That, that's the focus, um, I, you know. But we we quite enjoyed watching F twenty two shooting down balloons. It's um, it's very very good sport, clearly. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yeah, yeah, plucky, uh, plucky, and and uh, and and cat like in their maneuvering uh, capabilities. Yeah. But they are very I mean, high, what, what, and it's a bit of a challenge want, to get to them. Yeah, I, frankly, if an F twenty two can't can't do it, you know, we all need to go home. Um, but I mean, <laughs> it seems to me that in terms of the in, in terms of the disparity of of cost and technology, this is not dissimilar to using a Patriot to shoot down. A crummy little drone um, over, you know, Saudi Arabia or uh, or Israel or, or anything else. It, it's um, and, and actually even in Ukraine, well, what this is doing is showing the degree to which there isn't an intermediate or indeed a, a low end form of defence against this. If we decide that this is a threat, um, and uh, that puts big economic pressures on any Western nation that's, that's faced by grey grey zone threats like this. Uh, it uh, it's uh, certainly interesting, R- Richard. Anything uh, you want to uh, briefly add uh, to this before we uh, go to the Polish uh, order uh, and a uh, c- couple of other issues? Yeah, I mean it's 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 pretty it's it's fascinating because you can achieve so much more from an Intel standpoint with the kind of elaborate constellations of nanosets that. Um, the U.S. and other countries have been evolving. There's almost a psychological warfare aspect of this with China, you know, the need to intimidate, the need to assert, the need to tell the folks back home about the long arm that they're not just a, you know, Western Pacific power. Um, 
there's something frankly just pernicious and concerning about it. Uh, I would uh, uh, point out, right, you still have to admire uh, the chutzpah, right? We flew this thing blatantly over your airspace. We want it back. And it's a violation of international law if you don't return it to us, right. <laughs> as opposed to the violation of U.S. territorial sovereignty. And it's interesting that today, uh, I think it was the uh, uh, People's Daily or somebody over there reported uh, that um, an unidentified object was spotted over a fishing village or near or in the territorial waters near a fishing village and it was going to get uh, in, engaged. Um, so, uh, you know, certainly looks like there's a little bit of uh, tit for tat, although I am also not Pollyanna. We Western nations also are very good at developing very good surveillance technology and employing it. And I would point to things like the U-2, the SR-71, and a number of other operations we've conducted over the decades um, that fall into our own version of, of, of gray zone. Um, Sash, uh, war uh, is entering um, clearly a new phase. Uh, European armament is moving ahead very, rearmament is moving ahead very quickly. Uh, Washington has just authorized another $10 billion package uh, for Poland. Um, you know, we mentioned last week uh, that uh, I think we mentioned last week, I'm pretty sure you mentioned last week that uh, Norway somewhat unsurprisingly went for leopard uh, tanks, some 54 of them, um, you know, over the Korean K2. And I think that's perfectly understandable since every other nation around Norway operates uh, the leopard. And, and that's sort of a standard uh, European combat vehicle uh, as well. How do we need, right? What does the Polish order tell us? Uh, and in the wake of uh, Zelensky's visit to the UK and to NATO, are we going to be seeing combat aircraft uh, come out of the alliance? I think Ben Hodges, uh, a former uh, commander of U.S. Army forces uh, in Europe now with the Center for European Policy Analysis, has made the case that he does think we're going to get there on combat aircraft. And the key is doing it through alliance consensus, as has been the case in almost every other transfer, putting aside, of course, Hungary and Turkey uh, occasionally. Uh, and Richard, I want to get your sense on that. But start us off, uh, uh, Sash, uh, because it is busy and getting busier, even as uh, Russia ramps up its combat operations to try to take advantage of this lull uh, between, uh, you know, before Ukraine gets uh, a lot more new capability. Okay, actually, I'm going to start with, with Norway first. I mean, I, it may not have been may not have been a surprise, but it was a hell of a relief for uh, the German arms industry. Uh, Krasmafai, Wegman, and Brian Mittal in particular, uh, because uh, the Korean arms industry has been incredibly successful at um, penetrating the European land systems markets. Uh, the K9 Thunder, um, uh, 155mm self-propelled artillery, I think it's now sold four or five nations uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, Poles clearly ordered the K2 tank as well. Um, that has shown you know, they're very, very price competitive indeed. And uh, I think that, you know, it's, a, you know, it really does show that um, however good Leopard is, and Leopard is a very, very good tank. There's no doubt about it. All, you know, in a variety of different uh, forms and upgrades, but the, you know, the, the 1A7, oh, sorry, the Leopard 2A7 is, you know, as good as it gets in, in uh, main battle tanks, but it, it is very, very expensive. And I think the idea that there might be price competition in, in the tank market and that, um, uh, there might not be a natural uh, ability then to sell the next generation of tanks, whether that's Ryan Natal's uh, Panther or a, you know, a, a Leopard 2 Evolved or Leopard 3 or whatever. I think that was a big worry to, to Germany. Norway tested these two tanks incredibly thoroughly. Um, 
I don't think anybody's tested these two tanks as thoroughly. Um, there's certainly no evidence that the Poles tested tested um, uh, the K2 or the M1 terribly thoroughly. They knew what they wanted. They wanted a bit of everything and they wanted it now. And that's why they bought it, bought, bought both tanks. But I think, you know, Norway testing them and finding that Leopard 2 was worth the price. That's um, of, you know, real relief to uh, the German arms industry. Now, I think as far as the, you know, the, the, you know, the Polish arms order, I'm still astonished by quite how big uh, the Polish arms orders are. I suspect that ultimately they're going to find that it's like drinking from a fire hose and that however good the Polish army is, and at the moment I think it's very good, they won't be able to absorb all this equipment at the pace that everybody, all the suppliers think they can supply it at. And, you know, when you look at a requirement for 500 multi-launch rocket systems, um, I don't think we could even deploy those in, in Eastern Poland. There just isn't the real estate for them. Um, so I suspect some of these orders will be trimmed back at some stage. Uh, but, um, you know, that's, that's an issue for the next, you know, two, three, five years. And on combat aircraft? I mean, UK, I UK has been a leader, as we've said on this program, as you've noted rightly, uh, in each one of these cases. And the Sea King... Uh, transfer did open the door, even though it was eight search and rescue helicopters, it opened the door for aircraft. Uh, and we have a tendency of saying no, 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 yes. And we're getting to yes, because there's consensus. If you notice, right after Joe Biden said no to F-16s, France said they're still on the table, uh, right? And, and hence, the process of sort of getting there without fanning the Russians too badly, ultimately. Uh, what's what's your sense on combat aircraft and what more is going to come out of the UK? Because again, all eyes are on whether the UK will make a move uh, on capability, thereby opening the door for everybody else. And a number of allies and partners have already said, I will transfer my F-16s if Washington gives me permission. And I would note, John Kirby seemed to say that if any nation wants to transfer their airplanes, they're welcome to do so, he said on Friday, uh, if I if I recall. Um, uh, or or relatively recently, I'm, I'm, I might not be getting the dates and, right and, because obviously it's been get, a busy and, week. Yeah, and that's the important bit, isn't it? Because it's all about the end user license and the transferability of the end user license. This is why the the whole tank business was so painful because Germany was not prepared to um, uh, sign waivers on the end user licenses for all the leopards that have been sold in Europe. Um, and until effectively that you know that that whole process was broken, possibly by the UK. Uh, decision to uh, deliver a handful of challenges, possibly by the US decision to deliver M1s. Um, you know, everything was blocked. But if, you, if the US is happy for other countries to, to deliver F-16s, then um, I suspect there are a large number by the standards of the Ukrainian Air Force that will be uh, released. UK, I think, will probably offer a, you know, again, a handful, dozen or so uh, early model typhoons, still way back better than MiG-29s, and in many respects as an air-to-air -air fighter, you know, up there with a with a, an early model Sukhoi 27, which is what they've got. Here's the question, though. It, I mean, air power has been the, um, it's it's been completely lacking in the, in the Ukrainian war so far. Surface-to-air missiles have just created areas, no-fly areas for both sides. And uh, air losses have been astonishingly high given the low sortie rate. And the effects that even those sorties have has been almost non-existent. So if Ukraine gets, you know, couple, you know, dozen, two dozen aircraft from the UK and then another 60, 70 F-16s from uh, other European nations, 
apart from the fact that it will probably take them six months to just to, to get up and running on them. And I don't doubt for one minute that Ukrainians can learn to fly these aircraft way faster than we give them credit for because they have to. But even, you know, even after six months, what happens then? Are they going to turn the battle the way that tanks, artillery, the guided multiple launch rocket systems have done? I don't think so. I don't think air power um, in the way that the Ukrainians might be able to use it, because they're not going to be able to put together a large combined air package for years yet, if, if at all. I don't think it's actually, I think it's, it's there for political reasons. Um, I don't think it is militarily significant. Whereas, you know, give them another million, 155 millimeter rounds, I think they can make a real difference to uh, Russia's chances. Richard, your, your sense on uh, sort of broader orders, but also on the combat aircraft front and whether you have any expectations that these transfers are gonna happen. Yeah, uh, and now a message from AirPower. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, obviously, Sash is right. It's mostly political, but that's hugely important, right? I mean, what's going on with AirPower? Yeah, it's not going to have an immediate impact on the air battle. That's that's very clear, both from the time scale and from the you know size scale. On the other hand, first of all, um, one day Ukraine will be independent and hopefully at peace again, having an air power capability will be absolutely essential in guaranteeing borders, sovereignty, etc. Work towards that now and breaking from the Russians in terms of that air air force capability. Absolutely essential. Point number two, they you know they say they want to move towards NATO membership in two years. Might not happen, but on the other hand, when you have F-16s or whatever else, you can start to you know enjoy greater levels of integration with NATO partners, that, that matters an awful lot too. Um, I would argue also that, you know, yes, the volumes of Air Force uh, involvement on either side haven't been great, but if their ability to maintain an Air Force in being collapses for whatever reason, lack of, you know, just aging Air Force, combat losses, whatever else, the, the battle is lost. That's not true for any other form of weaponry, the best of my knowledge. But, you know, you don't have the ability to put a few dozen fighters in the air, you lose the war. So I think, yes, it's not going to matter much in six or 12 months. But beyond that, it's just usually important. Um, I, I think uh, the biggest problem is they don't have enough capability. The other guy's defenses are good. And if you got the defenses up and the attack capability up, I think you change the dynamic of this. We're not giving the Ukrainians the weapons with which to hold at risk those long-range air and missile defenses that the Russians are fielding, something that we would have, we would be able to do with our existing fifth-generation capabilities uh, and, and the like. So, I mean, this is where I think it, it, we, are, we, are, we are in this position, saying this as an air power advocate, in part because we are not giving them the tools with which to deploy the kind of air power they need to deploy in order to be able to get that air superiority um, that is uh, a critical uh, determinant. And, and one what, you know, why we invest as heavily as we do in a strong attack, we still have defensive capabilities, even, even as our attack capabilities grow. I, I want to be able to uh, bring Ron into the discussion and really uh, quick takeaways from uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, Air, Aerospace uh, Alliance, uh, PNAA, uh, obviously a very important organization that represents uh, one of the nation's most vibrant, uh, certainly commercial, but increasingly defense, uh, as well as 
space uh, ecosystem. And Ron and Richard, you guys both participated in it, uh, along with our mutual friend, uh, Kevin Michaels. Um, Ron, any, any points on sort of rearmament and how that necessarily change investment, you know, investment outlooks for uh, some of the companies that are doing the supplying? I mean, $10 billion is a nice piece of change, and it's only one of a number of big orders that are going the way of, of, of key U.S. industrial players. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to pull in, you know, the PNAA event, um, the way I frame it is, who moved my cheese? Ultimately, you know, if you look at the supply base and, and a lot of the considerations that they have to consider um, when they run their businesses, in some cases, these are, you know, very small tier three, tier four companies, in some cases larger. Um, and they look at all the uncertainty that they went through because of the pandemic, because of the 737 shutdown and all the noise there, because of the 787 shutdown and, and all the uncertainty we've seen in, in civil, in a growing defense market, there's opportunities in defense. And quite simply, you know, the US government pays to pay quickly. Sometimes they'll fund your inventory. You're not waiting 90, 120 days to get paid. The market's there. Um, there's more visibility because of how the budgets play out. Um, so you're, you're seeing some suppliers take productive capacity that could have been used in commercial arrow and could have been used for the ramp up. And it's being deployed into defense markets. It's being deployed into space markets. Let's not forget, you know, commercial space is a, is a growing area where we're seeing a lot of activity. So it's, you know, it's had a real material impact uh, on the supply chain. You know, they're not just sitting there waiting for Boeing to throw them cheese. They're looking for new cheese. Um, and I think in some cases being pretty successful at it. Um, those who are just sort of beholden to the old cheese, um, it's, it's, been, it's been tough out there. Um, case in point is if you look at the companies that made big investments on 787 and a lot of the tooling and so forth for 787 is very specific for that airplane due to its composite structure and so on and so forth. That's productive capacity. In many cases, you can't deploy anyplace else. And with Boeing trickling out 787s, it's been really painful for them. Uh, indeed, it's all about the cheese and moving the cheese uh, to get the ecosystem uh, to 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 flex. Um, um, but any any last thoughts before we part for the week? Sash on cheese, Richard on cheese, Richard on PNAA. <laughs> well, you know, just to make the point that uh, my my friend Kevin Michaels has made, um, you know, the hopes of making the making the ramp really depend upon the suppliers having access to the working capital that frankly is uh, is a bit problematic right now especially with interest rates rising and uh, disappointments on the production front whatever else so it's uh, Ron's exactly right is a you know who move my cheese you got to you have to you have to diversify um, the other hand the other side of that of course is uh, you have to question uh, the capacity of the business given all the other cheeses they are pursuing in defense and space and whatever else to uh, to make that ramp that rather you know <laughs> more ambitious than ever ramp sash any any last word before we part i think there's an irony that um you know up to, up to a year or ago or a, you know, a couple of years ago companies would have been prepared to invest something in working capital something in in a non-recurring cost tooling and so forth for civil customers because they had a great deal of confidence 
in the 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 market and uh, the prime contractors and you know the nature of the ramps and so forth. Um, and defence companies just sat in their hands and said. Governments, you know, governments don't give us the visibility, therefore we won't invest unless they tell us what to do. We're still hearing that a bit, but I'm hearing more and more, particularly in Europe, companies being prepared to invest proactively to, you know, ramp production up for defence programmes. But, you know, they're not prepared to do the same thing for um, particularly Boeing, but I'm to an extent uh, Airbus as well, because um, they feel they're not being paid enough and they don't actually trust the, the, the projections they're getting from the civil OEMs anything like as much so there's been a really interesting turnaround in the um, sentiment of subcontractors towards defense compared to civil in my you know in my in my view from over here there's one important thing uh, we forgot we can go into greater uh, detail uh, about it uh, Richard um, help us out with this uh, Air India um, you know but you know in fairness we have discussed this. A couple of times, uh, but we got uh, deep uh, into this, even though we discussed this in the show planning process. Real quick, your take on this, right? About 300 airplanes to Airbus, 300 airplanes or 250 to Airbus, 300 uh, to Boeing, one of the largest orders in history, if true. The question is, I think Sash nailed it. This is a little bit like Hawks going to India, where it takes 20 years and eventually it could happen, but it took an awful long time to get there. Your sense on what this announcement concretely means, and we can go deeper into it next week. Yeah, I mean, India is the new China, as people, people often say, so there's a great deal of hope for it. You know, it's like, wow, fast growth market, that must be good. And not only that, wide bodies were saved because, you know, the wide body market is a scorched hole. Uh, so that's all good. But, 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 but first thing you have to, uh, how do you put it, reinvent Air India, you know, new owners, that's great. Now you need a new carrier with the new owners <laughs> and they have to compete against the people who've taken so much of India's traffic, which of course is the Gulf super connectors. So a lot of work to be done. Yes, ultimately, as I said, though, you know, over many years, they'll take a lot of these planes, but when and at what pace, there are grounds for skepticism. Great. And we will talk more about it uh, next week, guys, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, hope you guys have a great day, great week, and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks so much. Always great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Absolutely. Wouldn't be Sunday without it, Vago. Thank you.